So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today we're really excited to be joined by Tamas Geruch, who is a PhD candidate in sociology at Binghamton University. Welcome to the show, Tamas. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about the war in, in Ukraine and the impact the war is having on Africa and Africans. And you wrote a fascinating piece recently in the website, uh, Africa as a Country. And let me just start by reading a little bit. The war in Ukraine may seem geographically distant, but in many respects, it's geopolitically close to Africa. And you start by talking about the 15,000 students from various African countries who are in Ukraine now. And um, maybe we could begin there. Why are there so many African students studying in Ukraine? And is there, or what is the connection to the Soviet period? Yeah, so it's, 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 it's a great question. The, the story really goes back to, to the Soviet era, to the Soviet, Soviet period, or, or we may even want to call it the Cold War period. Uh, after after the Second World War, and especially after the 1960s, which which was a time of decolonization, when most of the countries in Africa gained independence, and uh, they uh, found themselves immediately in this actually very challenging international situation, which was the Cold War itself. So on the one hand, it was the expansion of U.S. imperialism globally in in alliance with the former European colonial empires that were themselves readjusting because because they just lost lots of their colonies, if not most of their colonies. And then on the other hand, you had the socialist or state, state socialist bloc led, so to speak, pretty much by, by the Soviet Union. Of course, the story will get a little, little more complicated on both sides, especially also on the, on the socialist sides, because China will uh, appear in the picture and, and we'll see an interesting competition between the Soviet Union and China after the late 60s that actually fact the choices of African countries, how they can and want to uh, maneuver or navigate themselves in these in these pretty stormy sea, if I can use this metaphor. So they had different choices how they um, sought to stabilize their situation right after independence, and this was actually we have to we have to emphasize it was not an easy task because a lot of the legacies of colonialism was was just just very explicitly there it was still there especially in the economy so their economies were and we have to say they are still dependent on on these old colonial ties uh, many of their local resources assets companies were controlled and owned by the, uh, their former colonizers and their bureaucracy the whole state was either still in a strange uh, indirect way controlled by the colonizers for example the military or or they just left the void which was not that easy to fill so these states desperately needed resources infrastructure human development uh, you know, bureaucrats, administration, uh, administrators, engineers, all kinds of qualified, skilled people whom they could recruit, not from these old colonial sources, but from somewhere else. So as I mentioned, they had, they had different choices here. It was just not one way to do this. And uh, these choices were, were very hard because 
they stirred up a lot of tensions and conflicts uh, in, in the in the Cold War scene. So they had to deal with with responses from from much stronger northern powers. But one particular choice they some of them tended to to take was to seek some kind of uh, alliance with the Soviet Union or some kind of a so- support from the Soviet Union, again, within this Cold War context. And the Soviet Union was open to this because of because of its own interest and its own <laughs> desperation, if you like, in this in this um, conflictual situation in, in, in the Cold War. So it was a sort of a matching uh, demands or um, how they found themselves. And of course, this was a complicated story. What could the Soviet Union do or help uh, these African countries? And what were the needs of these African countries? It, it, it was not, they were not always on the same page. But one thing in particular, education seemed to be a good link, so, so, uh, an area where they could really come into terms and, and come into an agreement. And as I've mentioned, because of this void, there was a massive need for, for trained and skilled people. So to, to, to tell this uh, otherwise really complicated story short, uh, the Soviet Union helped to, to recruit uh, these, these, these staff, these personnel, especially in the field of military, but not only engineering, uh, you know, medicine, uh, all kinds of areas that, that a state needs for itself to be operational through, through education and recruitment. In all these areas, the Soviet Union actually became a very, very crucial uh, player in the 60s and 70s and so this is where the story goes back this is the reason why a lot of these legacies actually soviet cold war legacies are still around there and not just in russia but in many other areas of the soviet union strange strangely enough ukraine was was itself a very popular destination within the soviet union and and we see these ties not just between those countries allied countries in africa and moscow but actually with kiev or other former Soviet republics, actually very prominent personal, like like later state presidents of African countries, just to name one, for example, the Angolan, former Angolian president, he studied in Azerba- what is today Azerbaijan at, at the time it was it was part of the Soviet Union. So I think this is 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 one of the reasons why this legacy is is, is live, if you like, and and you do these channels did not, were not disrupted even after the fall of the Soviet Union and they, they, they they've been sustained and it's it's sustained a kind of popularity of, of these countries as, as a popular destination for 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 a study abroad program and second to that of course is that these places are more affordable maybe a little more accessible than other countries, universities, or educational system in the West, really financial-wise, and still they are having a very advanced infrastructure. So that's not just the legacy of this diplomacy, but the actual legacy of of the state's socialist model, if you like, that they really invested in in, in human development, much more usually than than capitalist countries. And for that reason, uh, the education educational system in, in, in a lot of these countries are still surprisingly advanced and sophisticated and well equipped, and uh, you can get a good training there. So I think this is the kind of you know package or or. These are the kind of reasons why, a bit to our surprise, yeah, there were there there are and there or, or there were a lot of students like 
approximately 15,000 students only from Africa in, in, in the Ukraine, but we could add uh, to the list students from India, Pakistan, Southeast Asia, Latin America. So it's actually a very large group of international students from the global south who studied in Ukraine and actually unfortunately found themselves in this, in this uh, horrific situation. Yeah, it's really an interesting history. And so that's one link between Africa and, and Ukraine. Another link is, is food, is agriculture. And as you pointed out in your piece for Africa as a country, many African countries, although their agricultural societies are dependent on food import and wheat in particular from Ukraine and Russia. So maybe just a little background there. How is it that agricultural societies in Africa are dependent on, on wheat from abroad? Yes, this is a kind of... Uh controversy of, of, of the system in which we live, the economic system in which we live. And again, it goes back to their colonial legacy to some extent. So a lot of these economies, uh, the way they are integrated into the world economy is something we call like a very mono cultural one-way type of dependence they usually export or, or or their their economic export is very much dominated overwhelmed by particular commodities that that are marketable in in the in the world economy very much in the west and this type of uh, commodity production is 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 really the result of of their their colonial history so for example uh in the case of let's say Nigeria, it's, it's, it's oil production. So the Nigerian state revenue and economy is highly dependent on, on oil. And so this kind of a monocultural dependence, one-way dependence, really eradicate the uh, other types of, of economic activities. The whole economy and in the way the whole society becomes dependent on the, that commodity circulation in, 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 in the economy. Or they might live in the kind of uh, agricultural context, like in small farms or in 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 uh, in rural areas, we could say. So, in this respect, agricultural society doesn't necessarily mean that they are agricultural exporters or there's a large scale advanced modern agricultural production. It really means that it's it's an unindustrialized society, and it really depends on raw material extraction and um, export uh, for for all the revenues it can use to to actually run the state and, and run the economy. And this is actually a problem because uh, the other side of the same coin, again, this kind of a colonial legacy, is they are very much dependent on the import side as well. So on the export side, they have this mono-commodity dependence type of a thing. And on the import side, they usually have to import everything else. They have to purchase everything else because they are not producing it. It's, it's again, a little bit complicated why they are not producing it, although they could produce it. And the sort of effort uh, African governments often make in their in their sort of developmental agenda is to diversify their economy to produce at least those things that they could produce that they were you know they had a very uh, comparative advantage historically the reason why they they lacking it or they sort of abandon the production of these these typically agricultural products are again the the, the colonial system that how they became dependent on on this um, exchange with their 
with their colonial metropoles. And again, this legacy goes as far as that they have to import food stuff in a lot of the cases, especially uh, processed food, um, you know, uh, canned foods or any agricultural inputs from fertilizers to machines, all kinds of things, but even uh, such uh, basic staples as, as wheat. So a lot of the countries, especially the big countries who are very much famous for these uh, monolith commodity productions, such as Nigeria, or, or I've mentioned Egypt, or other countries in, in Eastern Africa, they are amongst, surprisingly, but the, the, the largest importers of these, these bulks, these, these uh, basic staples such as wheat. And for, for various reasons, some of them, again, coming out of this Cold War alliance with the, with the former Soviet Union, a lot of these imports, they, they switched it. They, they managed to switch it away from, from their former colonizers, but they did not achieve to become self-sufficient. Rather, they you know, exchange one form of a dependency for another. So they became dependent on, let's say, a Russian import or a Chinese import or, or some other kinds of an import. So in the case of Egypt that you've mentioned, or, or I, I discussed it a little bit in, in, in my blog post, is, is, is very extreme. So Egypt is the largest importer of wheat in the whole world. It has obviously a, a, a big, very big population. It's not producing enough um, agricultural products. It's, it's very far away from any form of self-sufficiency. And it's usually importing from Ukraine and, and Russia. It's, it's over 80%, approximately 85% of the wheat import in Egypt comes from Russia and Egypt. So it's a very extreme uh, dependence on, on that agricultural supply. And maybe if it's not as extreme as the Egyptian case, but you can look at other countries Big countries, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, Eastern African countries that have a, a, a large exposure to, to, to the import of these bulks from, from the former Soviet areas, which themselves, just, just to mention some, some statistics, so Russia and Ukraine, they are uh, amongst the biggest exporters of, of wheat, uh, over one third of, of the global wheat trade comes from, from Russia and Ukraine. So they have a very significant impact on, on, on that market. Yeah, and last time we saw food prices rise um, to these levels, we also saw a political fallout, particularly in the Middle East. We, we saw the Arab Spring, and you've written that one might expect, reasonably expect there to, there to be some, the same sort of disruptions or um, maybe even uprisings in the Middle East or, or North Africa. Um, this time around, right? Yeah, this is definitely a, a, a very dangerous moment for for these countries. And exactly, we can just draw this parallel with uh, with the Arab Spring, as you mentioned in two thousand and eleven. That was triggered by by inflation, if you like, like a very sudden uh, rise and controllable rise of 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 the prices of of basic um, products that are really needed for for the ordinary people or for the social reproduction of ordinary people, such as fuel and some food stuff. And because it was not just a question of the economy in, in an abstract form, but it really impacted the livelihood of the people or their uh, strategies for survival in communities that are really exposed to poverty and, 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 and um, 
you know, the kind of a crisis of social reproduction. So even a little bit of a change in the conditions can endanger their this, this strategy and their lives. So in a way, no surprise that it's it ended in, in this conflict, the, the Arab Spring, and they, angry people, wanted to have a better life, uh, seek a, a better option by actually seizing the state as much as they could. So the kind of logic applies here too, especially that we see the radical rise of these prizes and and uh, even before the war so there the, the situation has has been anything but but calm and this is a big question where it can go so we saw egypt uh not long ago probably probably like three weeks after the the, the outburst of the war imposed prize cap if you like on on bread which which is again it's 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 uh it, it i believe it was a necessary move although it's it's a military regime it's a military dictatorship in egypt so it was not necessarily for the sake of just you know altruism or like a social policy kind of a thing but it uh, even this this relatively brutal military regime could feel the the danger of 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 the the, the potential explosive explosive nature of this situation if if the the prices of these basic staples got out of control and you know people just cannot make their livings uh, amongst these conditions so in my 10th grade class we are we are studying the uh, we're writing a paper on the causes of world war one and um in preparation for the paper well the kids are, are reading lots of historiographies and one of the one of the names that they keep coming up um, against is Lenin and and his his book um, Imperialism: The Highest Stage of Capitalism, and, and he makes the argument that capitalism will always lead to imperialism, and imperialism will always lead to to war. And I couldn't help but but think of this this text when reading your work. You seem to be making the argument that there is a a new scramble for Africa. The first scramble, of course, comes after the Berlin Conference in, in 1884-85. And many historians argue that this, this first scramble for Africa was one of the major factors in, in leading to World War I. Can you talk to us about this, this new scramble for Africa and what role Russia is playing, what their goals are? And, and the big question then, of course, is how likely you think this is to lead to another world war are we already in world war three but we don't recognize that yeah i think it's 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 one of the most one of the most important current question in 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 in, in geopolitics or or in the historical context where exactly in what moment are we right now and as you as you said i i i, I agree with, with these parallels or i i myself um trying to understand these these more more current historical moments with the help of, of historical comparisons to, to late 19th century, early 20th century, which, which, which is the period of, of imperialism, as you, you cited Lenin, and there are, of course, a couple of other authors that were discussing uh, the, this issue at the time. Back to your question, I, I, I would uh, believe that the, the, the very cause, the very root of imperialist rivalry was 
not the scramble for Africa. The scramble for Africa was more more a result or a product of this. It it uh, in fact derailed the the trajectory a little bit and sort of postponed the conflict amongst the major Euro- European colonial powers at the time to a later point. So it could not undo it. It could not stop the escalation of the conflict, but to 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 the surprise of many of the observers at the time actually the the scramble for africa the partition and colonization of africa was was in a, a relatively quote unquote peaceful process in terms of the relationship amongst the the european powers so they did not really have major conflicts over over this issue they pretty much sat down around the table and and they they agreed on 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 the partition it was of course a little bit more complicated than that and we also had some 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 localized conflicts or near conflicts amongst them in in africa but there was no war in 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 the scramble so the war came later and uh, of course the scramble and the colonization contributed to that but that itself was also the result of 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 this tension of this escalation of 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 their conflicts yes it's a big question and we have a lot of debates still today what the real causes were and and probably there is no one answer to that there there are a couple of answers uh, in terms of you know on, on on what scale you you pose this question, maybe the largest scale we we can have in the discussion is that the international system as it operated uh, up to the late nineteenth century was a hegemonic system, uh, which which we can call the British hegemony. Hegemony meant uh, economic, political, ideological forms of domination or at least um, a conduct of this political system on on behalf of the of the largest empire at the time which which was the British so what led to imperialism was the crisis of this system and the crisis of this system had uh, uh, its origin in, in in many fields it had its origin in the economy British economy saturated and there were new contender economies the Germans the United States Japan even in the European continent France so Britain lost its its economic might, uh, as well as its its political leadership or its its agency, its power to coordinate the the the, the international affairs, and that was challenged as well. So, in a way, the escalation meant that this former system was really challenged uh, in every piece, on every ground, from from its very ideology down to to its its political military regimes and systems, and as some people argue, such an escalation cannot leave, lead anywhere else than to, to an open war. This, this might be a parallel on, on, on this global large-scale picture to what we are living in today, because I would argue we also living in the dismantling, the reconfiguration of, of a global system that consolidated after the Second World War, but entered into a kind of a crisis in the 1970s and 80s. And that, that's actually the US hegemony. So to understand both the context of the scramble of the 19th century or this kind of a new scramble, which might you know, occur or might have been occurring recently in Africa, we have to put 
this question back into this global context that you know the, there there are new contenders the whole system is in a way falling apart and you have more rivalry contestation than agreements and you know compliance in a way that's one parallel on this on this uh, global on this global stage mm, another interesting thing is that you know world war 1 was also not just um it it did not just suddenly uh, happened in an otherwise peaceful era although it the way it happens and the the whole you know endurance and condition it really surprised the contemporaries they were not expecting this to happen but there were other wars before so uh this hegemonic system it it lost its power bit by bit in a very gradual fashion and the more it was dismantling the more conflicts you had in in various locals so the system could localize the conflicts uh, to some extent uh, but at the end it couldn't so the, in, in in this respect the world war was the culmination of all these conflicts into one mega storm if you like but a lot of the elements of these storms were around this is what we called proxy wars there were a lot of localized proxy wars which uh, as i've mentioned it happens in in africa in parts or in usually outside of the Euro-American transatlantic context. So from, from, from their perspective, from, from the perspective of Europe, the European continent, it was a peaceful period, but globally it wasn't. So these proxy wars were exported outside of Europe. So European powers, rivalries led to wars in, quote-unquote, their peripheries or the peripheries of their empires, for example, in, in Africa or, or in the colonies. And this culmination of the megastorm, you can understand it how these proxy wars came back uh, onto the global stage and actually they, they really hit in, 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 in the area where they actually originated from in, in, in the European continent. Again, we could draw some thought-provoking parallels here and in a way even to understand what's happening between Russia and Ukraine, the Russian invasion, the, the war waged by Russia and Ukraine is a interesting kind of a proxy war in which major players are not only the Russians and Ukrainians, but other global players, such as the NATO, obviously the United States, we just need to listen to uh, politicians' comments on the war, and, and China is obviously a very major player. So the historical moment draws some parallels, and I wouldn't I, I, I'm not in favor of the so, so-called historical determinism. I wouldn't suggest that it uh, necessarily leads to the mega war, like a new world war or a global collapse. There might be several other alternatives to change the system or to consolidate the system. But we do see the proxy wars and their escalation and intensification in many areas, actually in Africa as well. I, I a little bit addressed this in the blog, how it's been already ongoing in, 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 in a lot of the countries in Africa, and we can expect more proxy wars in areas where great powers in the new scramble have interest. So this is, again, not a new thing. And I don't know, that's that's a question, how they add up and, and what, what is the next stage of, of this escalating situation on, on the global scale. And going back to the new scramble, so the new scramble is, is, is this, like you, ha you have 
this the kind of collapse or the the dismantling or disintegration of the system really appears first where the tension is exported where it's 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 oftentimes in the in the in the peri, in the peripheral these very dependent colonial or post-colonial areas of of the of of the great powers they they do intentionally export a lot of the tensions there temporarily as long as they can manage this so they do appear uh, so this rivalry economic rivalry trade rivalry monetary rivalry military rivalry it really appears in this context in these countries and um, the new scramble describes what's happening in Africa. We, it points to these new powers, power, powers who seem to have their interest to go into this conflict, to invest into this conflict, and try to just carve a share out of out of the resources they can they can manage to. To capture and China is obviously a big player. So if you talk about the new scramble for Africa, it largely means how the older colonial empires are really losing their ties, their uh, the reminiscence of their economic or political influence uh, after the Cold War in Africa. Particularly, France is a great example that's been very much waning, and and you see a lot of protest against France, French troops being withdrawn, economic assets that have been controlled by France or or local currencies that have been pegged or controlled by France with, with you know, seizing the foreign reserves of these countries. There's been all questioned in, in Africa, just, just, just to name one example. And instead, you, you see this kind of a new alternative powers sneaking in and, again, trying, uh, trying to maybe to 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 show or uh, present some kind of alternatives of these these all colonial system and, and obviously so china is the most powerful one but russia is there too russia is actually very active it's been quote unquote discovered relatively recently nobody really paid much attention and you don't necessarily see it in the big statistics because compared to china or even to us and france Russian activities is minuscule, it's very small, but it's growing and in specifically targeted areas, particularly in military, particularly in extractive industries, in some other cases in infrastructure, you you, you, you see Russian companies, Russian personal, uh, Russian investments with significant impact. So it is, I would argue, it is part of the new, new scramble and, and Africa could be unfortunately an area that attracts a lot of these tensions, rivalries, and conflicts, also because of its rich resources and very fragile political history since since colonization. For that reason, Russia's Russia's interest and 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 its activity has been intensifying actually since the two very much with the arrival of Vladimir Putin. I hope you enjoyed the show today. This is a small request for a small donation. If you are a regular listener and were thinking about donating, now is the time to do it. Even a dollar or two a month would be wonderful. We are trying to hire an editor. We are a long way from our goal, but um, I think with with some donations this month, we, we might get there. So consider it. You can go to the website, which is www.acorrectionpodcast.com. See a donation button there. 
if you live in the United States, it's a tax-deductible donation, which is uh, a real benefit. In any case, please consider donating, and we will see you next week.